man named Dr. Alexander Black was, in 1839, a member of a deputation from the Church of Scotland that had been sent out to find possible opportunities for evangelizing Jews, both in Europe and in the Middle East. And as they were riding camels across the Sinai Desert, Dr. Black fell asleep and tumbled to the ground. At first it was thought that all was well, that his injuries were not significant, but it was later found to be more serious than they thought. And so he and another member of the deputation, Dr. Alexander Keith, cut short their trip and attempted to return home early, traveling up the Danube River through the heart of Europe. And passing through Hungary, they stopped in the city of Pest, which is now part of Budapest. And while they were there, they proceeded to make inquiry about the situation of the Jewish community there in the city of Pest. And upon making inquiries and meeting a Jewish rabbi, the Jewish rabbi threw out, as it were, a challenge to them, saying, send us a missionary and we will reason with him. As Dr. Keith would later recall, we had no such challenge in any other city. We ascertained that there were many such Jews to be reasoned with there and were informed by one of the professors that there were 30 Jewish youths at the university. As to the desirability of a mission there, we were soon fully satisfied. But as to its possibility, we saw no way. We knew well that the Austrian government, then supreme in Hungary, would be dead against it. But in the providence of God, both Dr. Black and Dr. Keith fell sick with what was known as the Danube fever. Dr. Keith was basically in a coma for six weeks. And their situation came to the attention of the Archduchess, who was herself a Christian. She had been converted to Christ some years earlier through reading the Bible and had been praying for someone who would come and carry the gospel to the people of Hungary. And so as these reverend doctors recovered and they spoke with Archduchess Maria Dorothea, they received assurance from her that if the Church of Scotland were to plant a mission in Pest, that she would do all that she could to protect it. And to make a long story short, they did and she did. They started a mission in Pest, and the Archduchess used her influence to protect it. The mission began, and services were held in a room for English workmen who were in the city and building a bridge. And soon the services were attended by Jews and others there in Hungary for the purpose of improving their English. And as that occurred, the Scottish missionary John Duncan began interacting with a Jewish rabbi and others in the Jewish community, and as he had opportunities to speak of the gospel, his method of doing so was to show the close connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that these were not separate books, but one book, all telling the same story, all pointing to the Messiah. And his teaching in the city of Pest was not without fruit. Through his labor and that of others, many of the seed of Abraham became convinced that Jesus was the one of whom Moses and the prophets had spoken. And so as we continue in the Gospel of John this morning, we find that, even though as we'd already been told by John, that though the vast majority of his people rejected him, nevertheless, even from the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus would be recognized by his followers as the Christ, as the Messiah, the one who was himself the fulfillment of what Moses and the prophets had spoken and wrote. And so please turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 35 and read through the end of the chapter. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now we have in these verses the account of how some of Jesus' first followers came to know him. And as we look at these verses this morning, we'll consider it under two main headings. First, come and see for yourselves. Second, bring others to come and see. Come and see for yourselves. Bring others to come and see. We'll be spending most of our time under the, under the first point. Come and see for yourselves. Now we find those words, come and see, or something similar, twice in this passage. Verse 39, Jesus says to the two disciples of John the Baptist, Come and you will see. And then down in verse 46, those are the words of Philip to Nathaniel. Come and see. And so in that same spirit, let's come and see who Jesus really is. This account begins in verses 35 and 36 with John the Baptist saying the same thing that he had said the day before. As we saw last week up in verse 29, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here again, now on the next day, he says again, Behold, the Lamb of God. And it's particularly noted here that this time he was in the presence of two of his disciples. These two disciples heard what John had to say, and they followed after Jesus. And when Jesus saw them following, he asked them what they were up to. He says, what do you seek? And they replied to Jesus, giving him a title of respect, rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? And by asking that, it seems that they were not so much asking his address or making some inquiry out of, out of curiosity, 
where are you staying? Where, where are you living? Where's your, where's your house at? But rather they were implying that they wanted to go with Jesus to the place where he was staying so that they could talk to him, speak to him privately, listen to his teaching and see what he would say, what he would say perhaps about himself. And so Jesus invited them, come and you will see. He invited them to come so that he could speak to them, and teach them, and they went with him. They spent the rest of the day with him. They found him convincing. We're told in verse 40 that one of those two disciples who followed Jesus to where he was staying that day was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. Now, we're not told explicitly who the other disciple was who went with Andrew that day to meet with Jesus. But even though we don't know, it seems like it is at least plausible that this could in fact be John himself, the author of this gospel. It fits with John's style of of writing in this gospel to be shy of making overt references to himself. As we see later on in the book, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved rather than coming out and saying, this was me, John. He is a little bit bit more uh, hesitant than that to bring himself forward. We don't know who this other disciple was for sure here, but it could have been John. Andrew, though is pointed out specifically for what he does after spending this day with Jesus. He goes, finds his brother Simon, and he tells him, we have found the Messiah. Now, as we considered last week, the messianic expectation was in the air in those days among the Jews. And Andrew goes to his brother and tells him the good news of this discovery. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. We found the anointed one. And later on, using different words, Philip says, in essence, the same thing to Nathaniel, or is getting at the same thing anyways, where he says to him, we have found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. They're getting at the same thing. The Messiah is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Moses and the prophets wrote about the Messiah. And this, this language, this term of the Messiah, or the anointed one, certainly goes back to the Old Testament times into Old Testament practices. In the Old Testament times, the priests were anointed with oil. We find the law concerning the anointing of priests in Exodus 30.30. You shall anoint Aaron and his son and consecrate them, and they may minister as priests to me. And we're not told explicitly that prophets were always anointed, but we know of at least one who was anointed with oil for the prophetic ministry, Elisha was anointed by Elijah, as recorded in 1 Kings 19. And then, of course, the kings of Israel were anointed with oil. We find that when Saul was first chosen to be king of Israel, he was anointed by Samuel, 1 Samuel 10.1. Likewise, David was later chosen to be king of Israel, and he was anointed by Samuel, 1 Samuel 16.13. We see Solomon anointed by Zadok the priest in 1 Kings chapter 1. And indeed, this language of the anointed one, or the Lord's anointed, then becomes a way of speaking of the king of Israel. David, for instance, refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed on those occasions when he had refused to to stretch out his hand and and kill Saul. You remember when those occasions, 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26, when he sneaks up on, on Saul when Saul was in the cave or when Saul was asleep, had the opportunity to kill him, but he wouldn't stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed. Lamentations chapter 4, verse 20 speaks of the Lord's anointed in reference to Zedekiah, who is the last of the kings of Judah before the Babylonian exile. And what we find in the Psalms is that this language of the Messiah or the anointed one 
is used not simply in reference to the current Davidic monarch, but also in reference to the promised descendant of David, the one who was to come. So just to give a couple of references in the Psalms where we find this, this language of the Messiah, we find it in Psalm 89, 50 and 51. Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. We find in Psalm 132, 17, There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. And then the most pointed reference of all, Psalm 2, 2, where we're told that the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And and then as Psalm 2 goes on, we see that this anointed one is the one who was begotten of God. We find that this anointed one is called the Son, that he is the one that the kings of the earth are to kiss in order to stay the wrath of God. And then the Messianic promise is strengthened even more in Daniel 9, 25 and 26, where Daniel was told by the angel, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So the, this language of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, was clearly in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. The ex- expectation for him was, was in the air there in the first century. This was the one whom the Jews had heard was coming. And this was the one on whom they had set their hopes now, sometimes those hopes and dreams which they fixed on the Messiah were misguided and misdirected. We see that even happening in the Gospels, among the crowds, sometimes among the disciples themselves. They had certain preconceived notions of what the Messiah was to be or to do. And those preconceived notions were sometimes very mistaken. But nevertheless, they knew that the Messiah was coming. And they knew it would be a good thing when he came. They knew that he was going to carry out God's plans and purposes for their good. And so can you imagine the excitement and the hopefulness then with which Andrew went to Simon, his brother, and said, we have found the Messiah. From their earliest days, they had heard this Messiah was coming, and now, here he is, we have found the Messiah. The long-promised Messiah had come. And though Jesus was not physically anointed by a priest or a prophet, as those anointed in the Old Testament times were. Nevertheless, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so when he went to the synagogue at Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry, he read publicly from Isaiah 61 and applied those words to himself as we find in Luke chapter 4. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then he rolled up the scroll and sat down and said, This has been fulfilled today in your hearing. The one whom the Spirit of the Lord has anointed is here in your midst. And likewise, as we read in Acts chapter 10, together this morning we saw how Peter said that God anointed him, the Holy Spirit, And with power. This is how Jesus was anointed, not with a human hand and with oil, but he was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit 
and with power. And as the Christ, Jesus then is the anointed one who is not only the son and heir of King David, but he's also the prophet like Moses who was to come into the world. As we saw last week, John the Baptist was clear that he was not the prophet. But Jesus is the prophet. He is that anointed prophet. Jesus is also our priest. As the letter to the Hebrews elaborates on at large, he's the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's not from the, the tribe of Levi, which the other Jewish priests were chosen, but rather he's from the tribe of Judah. And being an outlier and an outlier who is superior to those other priests, he's a priest who is also a king. A priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who was also a priest and a king. And so it is in Psalm 110, as we, as we sang together, that David anticipated the combination of those two offices, the kingly and the priestly offices, into one person person whom he had designated as his Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter in Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And indeed, we find some combination of those offices in the words that John would later write in Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, where he speaks of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. In those words, John says that Jesus is the faithful witness. Jesus is the one who speaks the words of God. This is the prophetic office, speaking the words of God. He's also the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is king of all, the true king, the king of kings, the lord of lords. Likewise, Jesus is the one who released us from our sins by his blood. He is our priest who has laid down his life for us. Jesus combines those three offices in himself. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He's the anointed one, the Messiah. He's the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. And Andrew was correct in his assertion, when he told Peter that he had found the Messiah, he was certainly correct in that. But it would take Andrew years to come to understand what that really meant. Again, there's a lot of misconceived notions that they had concerning the Messiah. But he knew that he had found him, and he would be confirmed in that truth that he had found him. That was the work of that mission in the city of Pest, commenced one of the most influential and educated Jewish men in Hungary, a man named Israel Sapir, was just beginning to learn English. And so in a desire to improve his English, he began attending the services that were conducted by Dr. John Duncan. This man was a scholar. He was an educationalist. He was a merchant in his early 60s at the time. And it was said of him that he was perhaps the most learned Jew in Hungary and was held in universal respect. He was a sort of Gamaliel in the nation. He was the bosom friend of the chief rabbi and the most leading and trusted man in every benevolent and useful undertaking. And so this, this man is a, is a layman. He's not a rabbi himself. He's very well educated, very highly respected among the Jewish community there. And as he conversed with the missionaries about the messiahship of Jesus, the testimony of the prophets, he said, it is very hard to give up in old age Opinions that were cherished from youth and never doubted. And being as he was, 
so prominent and held in such high esteem in the Jewish community, he had much to lose, outwardly speaking, from a worldly perspective, much to lose if he were to become a Christian. But nevertheless, as he engaged in discussion with the missionaries and attended services in the, the company of his young son Adolf, eventually they were both convinced that indeed Jesus was the Messiah. But Israel delayed his baptism, longing to bring the rest of his family with him at the same time to make a public profession of Christ. Eventually his, his wife later came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and was ready to profess her faith, but was fearful about the earthly consequences of following Jesus publicly. And at the time of his conversion, Israel's daughter Elizabeth was away from home for some time, and when she returned home, she found that the home which she had left was different from the one to which she had returned. And when she asked to know the difference, her father told her that they had found Jesus of Nazareth and that he was the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this young girl was horrified at first and had no desire at all to take part in what her family was doing in coming to Christ. And her father simply asked her to read the New Testament. And eventually she became a Christian as well. And so it was that in June of 1843, Israel Safir and his wife Henrietta, their three daughters and their son Adolf, were baptized into Christ. And at his baptism, Israel stood up and he gave an address in which he spoke of the truth of the gospel and the experience of his own soul and the change that he had witnessed in the members of his family. And his testimony is said to have brought both Jews and Gentiles to tears. As Adolf's biographer would later express it, there was a power and a simplicity and a truth in the words of a patriarchal Jew as he stood in the midst of his family and testified for himself and for them what God had done for their souls. It might be seen reflected in the riveted attention of all present that these doctrines were no trifles, but they entered into the very life of the soul. This is what it means to find Jesus as the Messiah and to follow him. It will turn your life on end. You might be ostracized by those who formerly loved you. It might mean that your social life or your professional life will be turned on end. Maybe not, but they might be. Israel Safir was asked to resign his membership in the synagogue, and he had to step down from his position as this director of a school that he had superintended for years. But he was willing to count all of those things as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus as the Messiah and being found in him. And this is the way it is for all who truly find the Messiah. Those who find him are willing to leave all and forsake all that this world has to offer because being found in Christ is the best of all. This claim that he is the Messiah and the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote is really that significant. Jesus it's the one through whom we are saved from our sins because of his death on the cross. Jesus is the one who reconciles us with God the Father. Jesus delivers all who trust in him from the kingdom of Satan because he has defeated Satan. And Jesus brings us into the kingdom of God and reigns over us as our king. He is the prophet who speaks to us, the word of God, the one who reveals God to us. And he's our priest the one who has performed all that is necessary for the good and salvation of our souls. And what this means is that whatever it may cost us here on earth to follow Jesus, it is absolutely worth the price. And so we, we see here, coming and seeing, we see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. We also see here 
in these verses something of Jesus' authority. Notice there how he renames Simon. Now, when we read of people's names being changed, sometimes we see this in the Old Testament. We see how God had renamed central figures in the history of redemption. He changed Abram's name to Abraham. He changed Jacob's name to Israel. And just so here, Jesus changes the name of Simon to Peter, the rock. As an apostle, Peter would be part of that foundation of the apostles and prophets upon whom Christ built his church, as we uh, find in the end of Ephesians chapter 2. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And he himself, though he would be weak and often impetuous, was to have a foundational role in the building of the church. He took the lead in preaching on the day of Pentecost. He was sent along with John to the Samaritans after they had received the gospel. And it was Peter whom God sent to take the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius. Peter was was foundational to the work of the early church as it advanced in Jerusalem and in Samaria and then going to the Gentiles as well. And just as God had in the Old Testament times changed the names of theologically significant people for theologically significant purposes, Jesus does the same thing here with Peter. We see Jesus' authority in this. His authority is God's authority. Jesus is God. And we also see here Jesus' unique knowledge of individuals. When Philip went to get Nathaniel, and Nathaniel came to meet Jesus, Jesus immediately says there in verse 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, on an earthly and personal level, Nathaniel and Jesus were not acquainted. And yet Jesus already knows all about Nathaniel. He knows that this man is a sincere man, that he's not only an Israelite according to the flesh, but that he is a true Israelite, a man who was of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it's difficult to say for sure, but Jesus may, in these words, be alluding back to Psalm 32, verse 2, where David had said, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Jesus says of Nathanael, He's an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now Nathanael is mentioned, at least by name, only in the Gospel of John. He shows up here in John 1. He also shows up near the end of the Gospel of John. John 21, verse 2, uh, when Jesus appeared to the disciples on one occasion after the resurrection. But it seems likely that uh, the disciple who is called Nathanael here is likely referred to as Bartholomew in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts. And after Nathanael hears what Jesus has to say about him, he wants to know, how do you know me? How does Jesus know? And again, we see the omniscience of Jesus. Verse 48, Before Philip called you, and you were still under the fig tree, I saw you. These, were, these men were not acquainted. Jesus was not physically there to, to have his physical eyes see the fig tree. But Jesus knows. And Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now Nathanael probably didn't fully understand exactly what he was saying, but he was completely correct in what he said. Jesus knew all about Nathanael. Let me just say, Jesus knows all about you too. There's nothing you can hide from him. Jesus goes on to tell Nathanael, in essence, 
But he hasn't seen anything yet. He says, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, in saying that, Jesus seems to be alluding back to the vision of Jacob uh, in Genesis 28 that we read together earlier. Jacob's ladder, as we call it. And indeed, Genesis 28:12 could potentially be translated as saying that the angels of God were ascending and descending on him, on Jacob. And so it seems that in saying this to Nathaniel, Jesus is not so much promising a vision like the one that, that Jacob saw, where Jacob saw angels ascending and descending, but rather that by these words he is promising that there will be a divinely sent confirmation that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the divine Son of Man. And indeed, such a confirmation is immediately what follows in this gospel at the the wedding in Cana of Galilee in chapter 2. These were told uh, there in chapter 2, verse 11, that this was the beginning of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. In other words, they, they had confirmation that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the King of Israel, by virtue of the miracle, by virtue of the sign that he performed. So come and you will see was the invitation that Jesus had given to those two followers of John the Baptist. Come and see was the invitation that was given by Philip to Nathaniel. Come and see Jesus. Now, as we've been walking through this ver- these verses this morning, we have seen much about who Jesus is. We've seen that he is the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. We've seen his authority. We've seen that he has the full knowledge of people. And the only right response to all of this is to follow Jesus. And in following him, we are to bring others to follow him as well. We're to tell others to come and see. And that brings us to our, our second point this morning, and much, much more briefly here. But we see this example set before us here of Andrew and Philip. Andrew told his brother Simon, Philip told Nathaniel, this is the right and natural thing to do when we have found the Messiah. The natural response of a person that has found the Messiah is to tell others, to come and see the Messiah. The coming of the Messiah is good news. It's good news for us who believe, and it will be good news for all who listen to us and come for themselves and see and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I know that the subject of evangelism and witnessing can be different uh, and difficult. I think we all agree in theory that it's a good work. We all agree that it ought to be done. Even, I think we all agree that we ourselves ought to be doing it. And I also think that many of us would agree that we have trouble in this regard. We get worried about what others will think of us if we tell them that we've found the Messiah. We get worried about being rejected or about being ridiculed. We worry what will become of our relationships with the people to whom we witness. And honestly, all of those things are real dangers, aren't they? They might think the less of you. You might be ridiculed and rejected. Your relationships might become strained if you tell others to come and see. But if we step back and truly understand the treasure that we have in having found the Messiah and having Jesus, and if we truly understand the real danger in which souls stand, if they are apart from Christ, then that should, should stir us up. Understanding the treasure, understanding the danger, that should stir us up to have a desire to 
want others to have Jesus as well. We'll want others to join with us in finding the Messiah. Instead of those converts in the city of Pest, that wherever they went, they carried the Savior of Christ with them. Their demeanor was modest and unassuming, but what was nearest their hearts could not be hidden. And this is the way that it ought to be. By all means, let's be humble, let's be modest, let's be unassuming. But may God grant it also to us that Christ would be the nearest thing to our hearts, and as such, that he would not be hidden from those with whom we come into contact. Now, there's no one single right way to bear witness for Christ to the exclusion of all others. But learn this from verse 45, that even an imperfect witness about Jesus is better than no witness at all. Philip there referred to Jesus as the son of Joseph. Now, Jesus, as we know, wasn't actually the son of Joseph. He was supposed to be the son of Joseph. We could say the adopted son of Joseph, but he wasn't actually the son of Joseph. Philip was perhaps not entirely correct in what he said, but nevertheless, his witness was still effective. Nathaniel, no doubt, came to understood uh, to understand more and more over time the, the truth of what he had said when he proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God. But still, he believed Philip. Philip's witness was effective in pointing him to Christ. And so be encouraged by this, that God can use even your mistakes to be effective in your witness. And so may God strengthen us all so that we would be conduits to others, that we may bid others to come and see what we ourselves have seen. And if you're here this morning and you have never yet trusted in Christ, I want to invite you to come and see. Think about what you've heard this morning. Read the scriptures. See the promises in the Old Testament. See how they are fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. See that Jesus is truly the one who was promised. Come to him and believe in him. If you have more questions about that, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to someone uh, whom you know here who is a Christian. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to come and see, to come and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for... Your kindness, we thank you for your love in sending your only begotten Son as the Christ, the anointed one who would be our, our king, our priest, our prophet. Father, we are so thankful for Christ and the salvation that is found in him. We ask, Lord, that you would stir us up, that we would bring others to come and see as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.